0: I ask you to stand now if you're able for the reading of God's Word. Today's scripture passage comes from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 6. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow in worship to them and do not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's iniquity to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, Welcome to our Sunday morning gathering at First City Church. My name is Paul, and I have the honor and pleasure and privilege of serving as the pastor of community and care here. So I think, I think many of you know, probably a number of you know, that last Sunday, I celebrated yet another birthday. Um, and as I'm quickly approaching one of those landmark birthdays, I'm going to be 50 in a couple years, Ugh. as you approach one of those landmark birthdays, you take time to reflect on changes that have taken place in your lifetime and for me perhaps one of the, one of the biggest advances if you want to call it that has been the launching and implementation of social media i mean i imagine in the same way i ask some of you were you really born before people landed on the moon i imagine some of you will ask me did you really grow up before social media existed yes i did <laughs> very much so and it was delightful so, so in 2020, when Instagram turned 10 years old, to consider how social media was, was transforming culture, The Guardian, that's a news outlet in the UK, they, they researched and they spoke to a number of people who worked for and had researched the impact of that platform. And one of the more intriguing things said about its impact was this. By constantly serving user images of visually appealing lives and hobbies, right? People are posting their best moments. Instagram forced people to make their lives more worthy of posting about. Leisure time became a status symbol. And it's not just our lives that have to look interesting on Instagram, our faces do too. Photo editing apps like Facetune, have boomed in popularity, teens slim their noses, enhance their waists and hide their spots with the help of digital editing tools. One plastic surgeon told how clients now seek impossible to achieve adjustments inspired by the app. So as we consider the impact of social media, this quote provokes us to consider a couple of things. First, when we relate to images of reality, we are not necessarily relating to what is truly real. Okay, You think about that moment, many of you get ready to snap a a picture. The mundane and ordinary aspects of life, they are shunned and set aside for something that appears to look much better. I mean, maybe when you are fighting or frowning or fretting or feeling like you don't fit in. I mean, you can put on a big smile. It, it, you suppress those feelings that you don't belong, that you don't fit in, and you, you put your arm around somebody and you feel like you're part of, part of the family or that you, you have good friends. Maybe when you're feeling a little, a little more fragile, you flex, You flex, right? I put on a t-shirt just for this, just in case you were wondering. Maybe, Maybe you look shocked and surprised rather than natural and normal. Maybe you suck in your gut, you stick out your chest, maybe you hide some defect, something you are ashamed of. You see, that image of reality... At best, it only captures pieces of who you are, and at worst, it it captures something that is false and untrue. People getting to know an image of you, they do not get to know the real you. Now, the other thing, interacting with images, it very much has a formative effect. You see, when I see others smiling and hanging out with friends, and I'm less connected in that moment, I'm prone to feel discontent with my life. When I see how everyone else is experiencing something extraordinary, I'm prone to think the ordinary and mundane moments of life are insufficient. When everybody else's body looks better, I may be prone to make foolish decisions about my own body. Engaging images of of others... It forms how we relate to self and how we relate to others and how we relate to the world. So this morning we're continuing our series in the Ten Commandments and we're specifically considering the second of the Ten Commandments. And it has to do with prohibiting people from making idols or images of God for purposes of worship. And I think this this reflection from Instagram helps us understand why. Images only capture a reduced form of reality at best and a distorted form of reality at worst. So the the title of my sermon this morning is The Ways of Worship. And the big idea is how we worship forms how we relate to who we worship. So Eric kind of mentioned this earlier The first commandment, it has to do with who we worship. We are to worship the one true God, the God revealed in the pages of Scripture. The second has to do with how we worship or the ways we worship, who we worship. There is a wrong way to worship the one true God. So to better understand this commandment, I want to talk about what is prohibited, what is not prohibited, while we consider some rationale for what is being prescribed here, and then conclude considering some ramifications of worshiping idols or images rather than the one true God. So if you have your Bibles, open it up to the book of Exodus chapter 20, and let me start with verse 4 into verse 5 to better understand what is being prohibited here. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow and worship to them and do not serve them. So the word idol here, it's the Hebrew word pesel, and it can refer to something that is carved, so a physical image you hold with your hand, or it can refer to any representation of God. So maybe a 2D image like a picture. So it was common for the nations, for the people of the nations that Israel found themselves among, to worship idols or images of their gods. One of the gods worshiped by the Egyptians was the sun god Ra. You'll see pictures and images of this god on pyramids or architecture in Egypt dating back to that particular period. Other peoples, they worshiped idols of the Assyrian god Dagon. It was a common practice. For people of the time to worship idols and images of their gods in their temples and even in their homes. They would have physical representations in their homes too. The idols that were created, oftentimes they resembled something from creation. Some type of animal on the earth or under the earth or above the earth. So one of the the things we're seeing here is that beyond the Ten Commandments inviting God's people into a life that is blessed, where people prosper as they relate to God and to one another, which is certainly true. That's one of the purposes of the Ten Commandments. Another purpose is to mark how God and his people, they are distinct and different. How they are set apart from the broader culture. Here's scholar Philip Riken. The Israelites had been living with the Egyptians who worshipped many gods, nearly all of which they represented in the form of animals. The god Horus had the head of a falcon, the god Anubis had the head of a jackal, and so on. When it came to the Egyptians and their idols, any idol was fair game. But the god of Israel refused to be represented in the image of any of his creation. You see, when God is reduced to a physical idol or physical image, just like on Instagram, That image would be a reduced picture of who the real God is at best and a distorted and misleading picture of who the real God is at at worst. The problem is not worshipping a false God, but worshipping the one true God incorrectly. Because when an idol or image of God is made, again, it is reductionistic at best and distorted and false at worst. At worst. Both are problems. How we worship forms how we relate to who we worship. So at at one point uh, in in the book of Exodus, something we'll explore later in in chapter 32. When Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments in written form on, on stone tablets, as the people wait, they become impatient. And they petitioned God to make an idol. So all the people took off the gold rings that were on their ears and they brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, fashioned it with an engraving tool and made it into an image of a calf. Then they said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it and made an announcement. There will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. Early the next morning they arose, offered burnt offerings, and presented fellowship offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink, and they got up to party. You see, the the language here, these are your gods, it's also translated, this is your God. It's unclear here if what's happening is worship of a false god, or if this is simply worship of an idol for the purposes of worshiping the God who had rescued them. I think this type of confusion is actually often characteristic of violations of the second commandment. At worst, embracing an idol or image, it forms us to worship a false god. But at best, at best, embracing an idol or image representing God, an image that is a reduced form of reality, it forms us to worship a form of God that is incomplete, See, in the absence of Moses, they weren't sure he was coming back. They were like, what's going on? The people longed to commune with God, to remind them of God's strength. So they constructed an image, something to remind them how God had rescued them. In doing so, the Israelites falsely reduced God's character down to particular attributes, specifically his strength and how he had rescued and delivered them how would relating how would relating to an image of a golden calf which was probably more like a a golden bull something a little stronger how would relating to that image form a people who related to a god who was full of compassion and mercy how would it form a people who related to a god who was patient and kind Reducing God to a golden bull. God's people would have been formed into, at best, relating to God's strength, but but something that missed the big picture of who God is. And at worst, something completely distorted and false. The second commandment prohibits such an activity because how we worship forms how we relate to who we worship. Now, in addition to to forbidding the worship of physical idols created by human hands, the second commandment also prohibits worshiping idols crafted by human hearts. Here's the voice of the Lord speaking to the the prophet Ezekiel. Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and have put their sinful stumbling blocks in front of themselves. See, idols and images are not something that only exists in the physical world. Idols exist in our hearts too. When we worship idols in our hearts, we're oftentimes worshiping gifts from God rather than the giver of the gifts. We worship things like power and pleasure. Comfort and control, acceptance and affirmation, status and strength. Believing those gifts, those things, will bring us ultimate satisfaction and worth and security. Listen to biblical scholar D.A. Carson. An idol is not only defined as a physical representation of God, but as anything that functions as a focus of our worship even if it has no physical representation. Whatever has the place of Jesus Christ in our heart is an idol. In fact, we are probably more tempted to worship non-physical idols than totem poles or statues of Buddha. The love and money and the desire for power serve as functional idols and are less easily identifiable as such. So the the person worshiping idols of the heart is worshiping something or someone other than God. So as we consider implications of the second commandment, we must ask the question, what heart idols may you need to remove from your life? Power? Comfort? Peace? Freedom from stress? success, affirmation, quiet. And we should also ask the question, we should also ask the question, how might have you have embraced a reduced view of God or a distorted view of God in your heart? You see, there are lots of Christians today that, uh, that adopt a view of God embracing their athletic team, or their political tribe, or their elite theological position. When we worship this way, we are formed into a relationship that is far more shallow than it should be. Because how we worship forms how we relate to who we worship. The, the God we worship can't be reduced to a simple image, or even a complex image that is created by human hands or crafted by human hearts. The God we worship has revealed himself to be something far beyond such a thing. The second commandment tells us we do not make images of God. Only God makes images of himself. Now, it's probably helpful to clarify here what the second commandment is not prohibiting. The second commandment is not prohibiting the use of images in worship altogether. In Exodus 31, after describing how worship is to be engaged at the tabernacle, God then describes his provision of skilled workers for building images that will be encountered during worship. Look, I have appointed by name Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, son of the tribe of Judah. I've filled him with God's spirit, with wisdom, understanding, and ability in every craft to design artistic works in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut gemstones for mounting, and to carve wood for work in every, every craft. You, you see, so the, the second commandment is not prohibiting God's people from constructing places of worship. Even though the church is a people, it can worship in a building. And in in that building, images and artwork can be utilized and should be utilized in worship. In the case of the tabernacle, images of angels and images of a throne and the construction of an ark is prescribed. There is a transcendence in worship that artwork made by human hands invites us to experience. Some of you may be familiar with people who think that crosses should not be allowed in worship gatherings because of the second commandment. Now, I do think we should be concerned about bowing down to crosses or people who arrive at a conviction that crosses absolutely, 100%, have to be present in order for worship gatherings to happen. But the presence of a cross, it points to the story of the gospel, invites us into that story, invites us into experiencing that story. It is not prohibited in the second commandment. People wearing crosses or having tattoos of crosses or having crosses in in your home, that is not a violation of the second commandment either. The cross is not an image of God. The cross is not even an image of Christ. It's an image of something that draws us into the worship of Christ. It's something that draws us to remember what Christ has done for us. In not prohibiting the use of all images in worship, There is a freedom that God's people have in using images in how we worship today. Images of angels, images of crosses, images of tombs, images that point to the resurrection and ascension of Christ. These images are not reducing God to a particular attribute or characteristic. Using them in worship, whether in the church or in the home, it's a way for us to be invited into rejoicing in the story of the gospel to remember how God has fulfilled his covenant with us. How we worship forms how we relate to who we worship. Now what about, I'm sure some of you may wonder, what about portraits of Jesus, pictures of Jesus? This is a good question. Uh, Representations of Christ's physical body or, or pictures of his face, they are not necessarily what we worship, but they do form how we relate to who we worship. Often, images from the life and death of Christ invite us to better understand the gospel story. Pictures of Jesus help us understand how Jesus lived on earth, how he came in the flesh, how he was with us. But do we need to be cautious in how we approach images of Christ? Each church, and to some extent with our individual access to so many different sources of of media, the internet, movies, social media. Each person must wrestle this out on a personal level. What images draw us into better understanding the gospel story? And what what images could lead us, could lead me to worship a reduced Christ? Or even a distorted Christ, leading me to worship an image of him rather than actually worship him. Embracing images of who we worship can very much form how we relate to who we worship. Let me give an illustration from the classic movie Talladega Nights. If you've seen this movie, you know Will Ferrell plays NASCAR driver Ricky Bobby. And there is a scene where Ricky is leading his family and saying grace before I, I think he, he calls it quality nourishment from Domino's Pizza, Kentucky Fried Chicken, and Taco Bell. If it says anything uh, about my background, I remember similar types of family meals growing up. As Ricky Bobby is praying, his petitions are repeatedly directed to sweet baby infant Jesus. His wife eventually interrupts. Hey, honey, you know Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him a baby. It's a bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. He responds, I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. She relents. You know what I want? I want you to do this grace good so that God will let us win tomorrow. Before Ricky concludes his prayer, his friends and his children describe the images of Jesus they like to identify with. Ninja Jesus, Jesus wearing a tuxedo at a party, Jesus leading music with Leonard Skinnerd. You see, the, the scene, as sacrilegious as it is, it underscores the problem of constructing images or idols. Even images or idols of Jesus. Embracing images created in our image It distorts our view of God, leads us to manipulate God. And it's more reflective of who we want God to be rather than who God has revealed himself to be in the pages of Scripture. So some of the best counsel I I read for the portraits of Jesus we, we take in, it would seem that less specific images as pictured in children's stories or artistic drawings, paintings, that seems appropriate. We're drawn in to how God came near to be with us. But but using a painting of a specific image of Jesus, say with blonde hair and blue eyes and pale skin that only speaks English and that just is all for American values, that could construct a false image of Christ that would seem to be a violation of the second commandment. See, we should be considerate of the reality the Bible has not revealed much to cling to about the actual physical appearance of Christ. And so it would make sense that taking in a reduced or distorted image, it would have significant repercussions for us. Well, let's look at the, the rest of the passage where God explains some of the implications here of obedience. Do not bow in worship to them and do not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the Father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. So so one of the implications of disobedience of the second commandment is provoking God to jealousy. Now, this word jealousy, you and I, we we probably connect it to feelings of insecurity. For example, I I get jealous when there are, are pastors with a bigger public platform or when I encounter people who can preach and teach better than myself or have a better mastery of memorizing Scripture, or even when I see others connecting with youth or caring for people better than myself. When when I sometimes encounter those things, rather than be thankful and celebrate someone else's gifting and wiring, I can embrace a form of jealousy that is very much rooted in insecurity. That's not the type of jealousy this text is referring to. There is another kind of jealousy a healthy kind experience when two people are in a committed relationship. You know, think of marriage. If I were to direct the kind of attention reserved for my wife to another person, particular affections and desires, she should be jealous. Seeing me in the arms of another woman seeing me flirting with another woman, seeing my affections captivated by the body or the words spoken by another woman, that should make her jealous. She should hurt. That's the kind of jealousy in view here. When we direct affections and desires to idols or images rather than to God, this passage is saying it wounds the heart of God. Now, this provocation of jealousy, when we choose to form ourselves to worship a reduced or distorted view of God, there are consequences for not only us, but the text says for others too. Because the reality is that how we worship forms not only how we relate to who we worship, it forms others too specifically how we worship forms how our children worship. Those who embrace the worship of idols and images, they embrace living under a curse. And that curse doesn't only affect them, it affects their children and their children's children. I know in 2023, when we emphasize individual choice, this idea of generational ramifications a generational curse consequences for how we worship for our children i know that we want to reject it but the reality is our sin it affects the children of this church and it affects our children's children now this does not mean that children are innocent victims children If you choose to embrace the idols of your parents, you are responsible for such choices. The text indicates that these children hate God too. They have joined in false forms of worship. They have joined in rejecting and running from God. A child growing up in a home where idols and images are worshipped may choose to join in or that child may choose to reject those idols and images worshipped in prior generations. The warning is, is pointing out the impact that parents and older adults have on the lives of kids. God is not hands-off when those idols are embraced. There are God-ordained consequences for future generations. Of course, in addition to offering a warning to those walking in obedience, the Lord also offers a promise of prosperity For those walking in obedience, him showing his faithful love, not to three or four generations, but a thousand generations. There is blessing in obedience. See, consequences of of disobedience, of sin may be passed down to children and grandchildren, but blessing extends for a thousand generations. It doesn't necessarily mean children will be saved, but, but it does mean that children are formed into a blessed way of how they relate to others. They are formed into being generous in how God has been generous with them. They are formed into experiencing peace and calm rather than chaos and, and disorder. The pronounced blessing here, it is far more powerful than the curse that is proclaimed. Because how we worship it not only forms how we relate to who we worship, it forms how future gener- relate, ugh, it forms how future generations relate to who is worshipped. In light of this text, I want to lean in on parents a little more for a minute, and in particular, fathers, since they are singled out here. See, sociology is teaching more and more and more the the importance of the role of a father in his home, and in particular, the spiritual formation of his children. This text is affirming the same. So here's biblical scholar Philip Ryken speaking to parents, and in particular fathers. What is God doing in your family? As parents plan for the future they should be more concerned about the second commandment than they are about their financial portfolio. This command contains a solemn warning for fathers. When a man refuses to love God passionately and to worship God properly, the consequences of his sin will last for generations. The guilt of a man who treasures idols in his heart will corrupt his entire family. But a man who loves God supremely A man who bows down before him in genuine worship and serves him with true praise will see the blessing of God rest on his household forever. As we are confronted this morning with what it means to worship idols and images rather than worship the God of the Bible, all of us, all of us need to wrestle with the question, what idols and images have you created that you are prone to bow down to? I mean, maybe you have embraced images that you need to surrender of foreign gods, worshiping crystals or images from nature or images of Buddha. Maybe you need to surrender idols crafted in your hearts. Maybe you need to surrender images of Jesus that more reflect what you want him to be. Perhaps maybe a gentle Jesus or perhaps a furious father figure. Either way, downplaying the fullness of his character is revealed in the pages of Scripture. This is a question for all of us, but even more so, is even more so pertinent to mothers and fathers. There are great implications for how you answer this question. If you are worshipping the idol of career, you should expect that to have consequences for future generations. If you worship idols of peace and quiet, you should expect that to have consequences for future generations. If you worship the idol of busyness, you should expect that to have consequences for future generations. If you have embraced a reduced or distorted image of Jesus, again, maybe a gentle Jesus that does not call others to obedience, or a Jesus that accepts everyone but does not call people to repentance, or if you have embraced a view of God supporting your political causes or freedom to live how you want to live, you should expect that to have consequences for future generations. Now, parents, I see you. And I, I I know there are single mothers in here trying to do the best they can. I know you may feel a great deal of anxiety as to whether or not you are parenting well. And you may want to tell me that it doesn't matter how you parent, but that would be a lie. This text is telling you something that you already know. There is a weight you need to bear. How you worship as a parent matters. But this text should also result in you leading not out of personal strength, but living out of how you have surrendered. Showing your kids your faith is not about your strength, but what you have surrendered to. So rather than being paralyzed to parent perfectly, to make up for all the gaps and deficits that exist, because we have surrendered to Christ, we are free to repent when we have fallen short. We confess the images that we have crafted in our homes and in our hearts. We thank Jesus for forgiving us, and we trust that God will carry on his purposes of redemption through his son as we surrender to him. See, here's this reality. I mentioned this earlier. Only God creates images of himself. You and I are his image bearers. We have been made to point to him. But, But because of sin, as beautiful and remarkable as we are, that the image of God in us is marred. It is broken and ruptured. The image we bear, it is in need of repair and restoration. And a view of that repair and restoration has come in the form of Jesus Christ. See, the Apostle Paul says this in Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creations. Image bearers of God, that's everyone in this room, everyone. Whether you're a Christian or not, because of sin, we have all marred the image of God that we bear. In surrendering to Christ, that image is repaired and will one day be healed in full. So if you're with us this morning and you have not surrendered to the one who demonstrated the fullness of God's image, maybe today is the day. For those who have surrendered to Christ, as I conclude, I want to offer one more illustration from marriage. See, directing affections and desires to another person rather than my wife, I, should, I said that should hurt her heart. But, but let me also say that, that that type of illustration, it connects better with first commandment obedience. Who I love rather than how I love. You see, there are, there are signs of our marriage covenant with one another these signs are not prohibited by the second commandment things like wedding rings and marriage ceremonies our home our children these are signs of our covenant with one another we have signs of our covenant with Christ as Christians too baptism the lord's supper participating in the life of the church we should be thankful for all of those signs we should participate in those signs but 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 we worship the God of the covenant, not the sign of the covenant. And likewise, we were worship the giver of blessings, not the blessings themselves. You guys, could, could you imagine me? Could you imagine me? This is my wedding ring, my $5 nylon wedding ring. Could, could you imagine me directing affections and desires to this ring, rather than to my wife. Directing affections and attentions and to desires to, to, to this ring. I love this ring. This ring gives me so much life. This ring gives me so much security. This ring, rather than the relationship, it is what gives me security and assurance. Now, again, you probably can't imagine someone saying such a thing with that flimsy $5 ring. but but But, I think you can imagine people who love images of their marriage, the ring, the house, the wedding ceremony, the kids produced in a marriage, being caught up in presenting an image of a perfect marriage more than they actually love and relate to a spouse. When that happens, it's sad, and it should be. You and I in Christ, we have been given access to the full image of God, to worship God, We don't need to worship an image. And we don't need another image to worship. We already have the perfect image. Jesus, may we worship and surrender and submit and learn from him. Let's pray.